1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I want to talk to you a little bit about learning how to sail. You say, I'm not interested in sailing. Well, you're going to sail anyway. One of these days you're going to sail away home. It'd be nice to know how to sail through life without shipwreck. Bible talks about people having shipwreck in their life. And the reason is because they didn't know how to sail. And there's several things that the Bible talks about. Holding faith and a good conscience. Lest you have shipwreck. So if you don't want to have shipwreck. Well then you need to know how to get out in the deep waters. Those who hang too close to the shore. Well then uh, you just liable to wind up on the shore. And not been able to walk on the water. I have enjoyed my trip through life with the Lord. There's a lot of things that I've learned along the way. Now you'll hear a lot of people talk about, you know, you got to have a relationship with God. And those that say it, I don't think they have a clue what in the world they're talking about. What do you mean by a relationship with God? I want to talk to you a little bit about it. I want to help you to understand what the Bible's talking about when it talks about fellowship and friendship and fruitship, and stewardship, and, you know, all those ships. Because uh, all these ships must be important. Because they teach us how to, how to sail, how to keep from wrecking. You see, there's uh, the water where you've got to trust the Lord, and there's the land where you feel safe. And some people want to put one foot on the land and one foot in the boat. You know they got problems. They're going to have some serious problems. But anyway, I wrote down here the definition of fellowship. Once described as two fellows in a ship. Going in the same direction, hopefully. Now, sometime when two people get married, <laughs> she wants to go this way and he wants to go this way. So they spend half their life fighting over who's in charge and who's the boss. Well, we got a little thing about that down here, too. But we'll look at that in just a little later. Don't read your notes in advance. Some of you have already done, done it, trying to prove whether or not this message is going to be worth hearing or not. Number one here, companionship. You know, we want to have fellowship and companionship. Looking for the fellowship of friendly people. The state of being a fellow or associate. A company of equals or friends. Association, uh, like a youth fellowship. The quality or state of being you know, a, a camaraderie among those that are like-minded. Thinking the same way, on the same page. And the two words here, building trust and confidence and fellowship with one another. Uh, that's one of the things we talk about with church. Everybody should be on the same page. As he says in 1 Corinthians, he talks about all having the same mind. Let, let there be any divisions among you. And so um, how do you balance all of these things? Well, here in 1 Corinthians in chapter 3, makes a statement in verse 10. This is uh, an assumption that these have already trusted Christ as their Savior. There's nothing in spite of the 14 problems that are mentioned here in the book of Corinthians that insinuate that they're not really saved. Paul doesn't do that. He corrects bad doctrine that they had with the correct doctrine that he has. And so when people are not doing right, you give them the right doctrine to try to help in that area. 
So this is what he does in 14 major problems. So he says, now that you have trusted Christ as Savior, you have believed there's only one foundation, and that's Christ. So all of us have to be on the foundation, which is salvation by grace. You can't earn eternal life, can't work for it. And you can only get on that foundation by faith alone, in Christ alone. Now look what he says here in verse 10. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let, and get this, every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. So here's the foundation, and that's Christ. When you trust Christ as your Savior, you are placed on the foundation. That's the rock. Now you may tremble on the rock, but the rock will never tremble unto you. So you are on the rock. Now, God says, since you're on this rock, this is your foundation, the truth that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, the son of the living God. He made the payment for the sins of the world, and you have accepted him as your savior. If you trust him in your good works, that's building up on sand. But if you trust Christ, you're building on a rock. Now he says that you're on that rock. Take heed, every one of you, how you're going to build. So you're going to build something on this thing. We can call it, well, my little spiritual house. So you got to put some things together. So the master builder and building upon this rock. So you are in your Christian life learning how to build yourself strong. It says in the book of Jude, building yourself up in your most holy faith. Building yourself. The greatest thing you will ever accomplish in your life is not the job you have or the money you have. It's going to be how strong were you in sailing the seas. Is your ship worthy? Can you build yourself strong enough to fight the temptations of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, all the things the devil may throw at you? And can you run your course that God has set before you? Interesting. Most people have already have shipwrecked their life. In other words, they'll never accomplish with their life what God intended. They've thrown it all away. But you see, it happens without you even knowing it. Trying to sail a ship upon dry land just doesn't work that way. See, the land is the flesh. The water is the spirit. So God wants us to be spiritually minded, learning to walk in the spirit. Uh, that means to walk in the spirit means to um, walk in obedience to the will of God. Are you strong enough to do that? With all the... Things that are pulling against you. That's why it's such fun serving the Lord. Because you see, when you walk in the water, there's no tracks to follow. There's nobody else's trail to trace. You have to walk each day, each step, just you and the Lord. One of the greatest things in the Old Testament is he walked with God. And Enoch walked with God. And he was not for God took him. Learning to walk with the Lord. So he says here, let every man take heed how he builds thereon. Now look at number two. Number two there. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy and chapter 1. He's saying that there's a lot of teachers that are trying to teach the law. Which is mentioned over there in verse 7 of chapter 1. 
There are those who are desirous to teach the law, yet they don't understand what they're saying. And they build upon sand. You want to build upon the rock. Now notice what it says. In verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. You see, after you trust Christ as your Savior, you know you have eternal life. You're going to heaven when you die. Okay, that's settled. That cannot be undone. Can't be altered. God can't change it. You can't change it. You're going to heaven, like it or not, because God keeps His word, and God is faithful. You were not saved because you promised God anything. You're saved because God promised you something. He promised to give you eternal life. He said, I'll never cast you out, and I'll never lose you. That's how you can know that you're going to heaven whenever you die. Now, when he makes this statement, which some having put away, what did they put away? Faith and a good conscience. Where you know in your mind, you're doing what God wants you to do. You're believing the thing God wants you to believe. You're living the way God wants you to live. Are you strong enough to do that? That's why the verse right before they're talking about that you may war a good warfare. Because, see, you're, you're in a war. And you want to win. Can you get through this life without the devil winning in your life? I want to win. I often hear, you know, <laughs> Donald Trump talking about, we never win anymore. We want to win again. I think, well, it, a lot depends on just what do you want to win? I want to win in the Christian life. I want to win this battle that I'm in. I've got a war with the lust of my flesh. So do you. And there's things that you want in life that may have nothing to do with the will of God. Can you choose the will of God? Are you strong enough that you want that more than anything else in this world? Now, look at the next little statement. The word anatomy for the purpose of this study will mean the spiritual dissection of the body of Christ in discerning the structural growth of the body, which is the church. In other words, what makes the body work? You can study about the anatomy of a frog. You ever do that in science class? The anatomy of a dog, the anatomy of a person. You can study the anatomy of your liver and your lungs and all the parts of your whole body. But what makes a church strong? The anatomy of a church, the body of Christ. What if we could break it down just a little bit and study the certain parts of it? And we find out that um, the whole works better when you understand the functions of the parts. Because I want a church that's strong in the Lord, you can't have a strong church without strong Christians. The individuals must be spiritually strong. We want to reach as many people as we possibly can, but it comes because there's people who are deep in the Word of God. And your faith goes down into the Word of God and wraps around this big old boulder that's in here, this verse, and then this verse, and then this verse, and this verse. And so you're able to stand strong and true because your faith is deep and grips these verses, the Word of God. Now, if you don't have your faith gripped around the verses in the Word of God, then you're not going to be able to stand the winds of doctrine that comes your way. But anyway, look at number one. The anatomy of sonship. No son without the father. No father without the son. You see, in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, when he talks about Jesus Christ, the son is given. The son is given. And he is born. 
And his name shall be called Wonderful and Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. Listen to what he says. He shall be called the Everlasting Father. If he's called the Everlasting Father, he must have an Everlasting Son. Because you can't be a father without a son. So Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Father. And he's the Everlasting Father. So whenever we talk about, you know, having a relationship with God, it's not that it's a bad word. It's just what does it mean? If you try to tell a lost man, uh, you need to have a relationship with God. Okay, now explain what you mean. Define your term. Do you mean that I'm supposed to have this relationship with God and that I, I go to church and that I, I read the Bible or I, I pray and I'm getting closer to God? I'm getting closer to God. Without sonship, there is no relationship. See, once you trust Christ as your Savior, you're born into God's family. Now, there is a relationship there. Somebody says, what's your relationship with God? I'm his son. He's my dad. He's my father. But outside of that, see, how we're getting along depends on whether or not are, are you his child. So, the scripture says in John chapter 1 and verse 12, As many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the what? Sons of God. You become a son of God by faith in what Christ did on the cross for you. So now that you've trusted Christ as your Savior, God says you have become his child. He is now your father. So my relationship with God is that he is my father and I am his son. Now, you may also want to know, well, what do you, um, how y'all getting along? Do you know that there's some people, they have a mama, dad, they got brothers, sisters. You say, well, what's your relationship? Well, that's my mama, and that's my brother, and that's my sister, and that, how you getting along? That means a totally different thing, doesn't it? Because your relationship is, that's my dad, or that's my sister, okay? How y'all getting along? Like cats and dogs. Or I haven't spoke to my dad in 30 years or my mom for blah, blah, blah. Or all kinds of things. And you'd be surprised that there's so much in a relationship that people don't get along. And then there's others you get along fine. So look at the next statement. The anatomy of relationship. Having a relationship with the father is based on sonship. There can be no fellowship without sonship. A spiritual relationship is a connection, association, or involvement with the Lord. It could also include a connection between person by blood or marriage. Kinship. We have that. So I want you to look at this verse. In 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, and look at this now. It's important for you to see what the Bible says. Chapter 1, look in verse 4. Because your fellowship with the Lord after you have trusted Christ as Savior, how are you doing? Remember, two fellows in a ship going in the same direction. God wants us to have fellowship with the Father and with each other. It means that we're getting along. That there's nothing as a child of God that I'm walking in the flesh and contrary to my Heavenly Father. I'm, we're getting along fine. You know what I've enjoyed not just know that I'm a child of God, but for 55 years or so to be able to walk with God. 
to walk with God through life. I don't care what happens. I always know. My father will walk me through it. All I got to do is just walk with him. He'll walk me through it. Good, bad, or it doesn't matter what happens. Me and God can handle anything. Between me and God, we know everything that is to know. Between me and God, I have all the power I need to do anything between me and God. You'd be surprised how much of it lends on him, though. But you see, you've got to understand that this is such a, a wonderful thing to know that you are a child of God. Now, look what he says in verse 4. And verse 4 says, and these things are written that your joy may be what? Full. Joy is because you know I can trust him. I can trust God with anything and everything. But when you can't trust God because of a lack of faith, then your faith is not as strong as it ought to be. And when your faith isn't strong, you have doubts. You feed your faith, your doubts will starve to death. But if you feed your doubts, your faith will starve to death. So feed your faith. Study the Word of God. Your faith will become strong. And because of faith and confidence in the Lord, you'll have more joy in your Christian life. You see, you don't have to go to bed every night worrying. Worrying is a sign of an undisciplined mind. Worrying is a sin. You were not born worrying. You acquired it. Some of y'all do pretty good. But you see, trusting, you have to learn. You have to learn to trust. And so past successful experiences makes you stronger for the future. But if you fail the test, you got to take it over. We tell the college kids that all the time. Fail the test, you got to take it over. And you want to learn and pass, learn, pass, learn. And you grow that away. And God will bless because of that. While we're in 1 John, look there very quickly in chapter 3 and verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1, so important. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the, see those words, Son of God. When you trusted Christ as your Savior, you became a child of God. When he writes you, beloved, it means beloved. When you accepted Christ as your Savior, you are letting God love you. When a person rejects Christ as Savior, they're saying no to the love of God. Christ is God's love. That's how God proved to the world that He loves us. And some people will reject the love of God. Now, look what else he says in verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. I'm not going to be a child of God someday. I already am a child of God. I've been a child of God for 57 years. But anyway, this is what is happening. You've trusted Christ as Savior, and God wants you to know this and understand Him. Now take your Bible and turn to the book of James in chapter 2. Just backwards a couple pages. You've got, you know, 1 and 2 Peter in there. And you go to the book of James. The book of James in chapter 2. James chapter 2 and verse 23. When God is talking about His great servant, Abraham, you know Abraham, not Abraham Lincoln, Abraham that was in the Bible, in the Old Testament. He says, concerning Abraham, that one night he took him out and says, count the stars. And he says, your seed is going to be just like that, innumerable. And he says that he believed God. And then he makes this statement. And his faith was counted for righteousness. 
He was made righteous by his faith in God. Then when God also asked him to do something difficult for him one day, it was offer up his own son. He was willing to do it. And God says in verse 23, And the scripture was fulfilled which said, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the, and here's those three little words, the friend of God. Now I got a few friends in life. (laughs) Not a lot, but I've got a few. But my greatest friend is the Lord himself. He is my friend. I am his friend. So there's also this fellowship and there's also the friendship. That you can have with the Lord. He ought to be the greatest friend you've ever had. No man is greater than the man who is willing to lay down his life for his friend. Because he laid down his life for me. The greatest way I can be a friend of God is to lay down my life for him. See, you're, you're his child. But you've got a choice in life. How much does he mean to you? So look there in chapter 4 of uh, the book of James. And look in verse 4, James chapter 4 and verse 4, where he says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world, get that, you got online, the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the what? Ooh. And that's where some of God's children are. They're greater friends with the world. They get along better with the world than they do with God or God's people. I've had people tell me, I don't have to go to church. You don't. But if you want to be right with God, you do. Now, that's the problem. Do you or don't you? Do you want to be a friend of God? It means you can't be a friend of God and love the world. You figure it out the way you want to. I'm just telling you what he said. And those who are friends with the world, he says, you're, set yourself against God. And then God will have to chasten and discipline you. Now take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John in chapter 15. John chapter 15. And there's a, a portion of scripture that's mentioned that's, I think, really sharp, really good. So in John chapter 15... Look what he says in verse 11. Verse 11. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Now this is not to get to heaven. This is to his disciples on what he wants us to do. And so if he tells you to do something and you don't do it, then you're not acting like he's your friend. And he tells you why. He says in verse 13, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends. See the next word? If ye do what I command you. Abraham was the friend of God and fulfilled the scripture because he believed God. And he was willing to even lay down his son's life in obedience to God. God says he's my friend because he's willing to do what I told him to do. Now, here you are. There's things you want to do. It's your life. This is your life. So why can't I do whatever I want with my life? Because God says, it's not yours. I bought you and I paid for you. Therefore, you belong to him. And your body belongs to him. So he says, glorify 
the Lord in your body and in your spirit, which belongs to the Lord. Now, look what else he says here. In verse 14, ye are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you. And what did he command you to do? Love one another. Now, look what he says in verse 15. Henceforth, from now on, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. Not we're slaves, but in contrast to that, God not only tells us what he wants us to do, but he tells us why he wants us to do it. God tells you how he wants you to live, and he'll tell you why he wants you to do what you do. So that you're not in the dark. Because God says in verse 15, he says, But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. I made them known unto you. You see, if you love people and you want them to have the best, then the best thing is for them to know Christ as Savior. And after they know Christ as Savior, the best thing for them is to learn how to walk with God. Well, the last thing I'd want to do is to do something with my life that would cause them to stumble over my testimony. I'll say this. It's not to brag. It's only because I need a good illustration and I can't think of anything better. My kids, regardless of what my kids do, or however they choose to live, they never saw their dad take a drink. They didn't learn that from me. My kids never saw their dad on drugs or smoking or using profanity. I've never sworn a cuss word in my life. So anything that they learned, they didn't learn it from their dad. They can learn it from somebody else, but I don't want them to learn it from me. I don't want to be a stumbling block to them. As far as the church goes... I try my dead level best to maintain a testimony that's right and honoring to the Lord. Do I do it perfectly? Yeah, no, I don't. Nobody does. But I strive to honor the Lord. I want to be a friend of God, and by being a friend of God, then I got to do whatever He asks me to do. Friendship. Who is your greatest friend? There's people that can choose and pick all kinds of people. The Lord ought to be your greatest friend. The best friend you've ever had. He laid down his life for you. He loves you that much. And then he tells you, look, I'm not just telling you what I want you to do. I'm telling you even why I want you to do it. He said, if you'll do this for my sake or you'll do this for the gospel's sake. Because you just don't want to see people go to hell. You want Christians to have the best. You want to be an example of the believer. You want to be that testimony that people need to see. That's what makes living your Christian life so important. Look at the next statement I have down here. The anatomy of leadership. Oh boy, I wish I could just bypass this one, but I'm not going to. Turn to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. Just a couple comments and then we'll move right along. Don't want to stay there too long. Because... As you know, people get married. I think that's a wonderful thing. Marriage is a good thing. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, Hey, that findeth a woman, findeth a good thing. She's so, a woman is a good thing. God created the woman. God created the man. And it's God who instituted the marriage. So we could say that marriage is an institution. But then some people say, well, who wants to live in an institution? <laughs> Marriage was ordained in heaven, but so was thunder and lightning. You know, they say love is blind, but marriage is an eye-opener. And that's when you find out what they're really, well, I didn't know you was really like that. 
Well, lo and behold, you get married, and so most spend their time not knowing who is in charge. Now, just so that you know, just according to the Bible, the ideal, the way God wanted it. Now, you may not fulfill it. That's your choice. But God put the man in charge. Lock the doors. God put the man in charge. Doesn't mean that he is greater and better and all that. It's just that the woman should not marry the man if she cannot trust his judgment. He is to be the umbrella that protects her. She is under his authority. I had a woman tell me, we don't believe in that junk. We believe in 50-50. It don't work that way. That's not how God set it up. Now, a woman can give all the advice she wants, and she does. <laughs> I had a man tell me, counseling, no. And she talked, 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 talked. And I figured that he'll say something just as soon as she gives him a chance. So anyway, there's a lot of things I could say about something like this, but I'm not going to. <laughs> it's understood. Yeah, it's understood. But I came to the conclusion, and I hated it when I found out my wife knew the Bible better than me. Because whoever knows the Bible the most usually is the leader. <laughs> that ain't what the Bible says. You can't do that. You're supposed to honor your, your wife. Blah, 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 blah. So I had to start learning the Bible. I didn't know how to pray. She would pray and pray such beautiful prayers. So finally I said, okay, we're going we're gonna to pray. So we get on our knees in front of the bed and I say, okay, you go first because I had no clue how to pray. And so she would pray and it was just, it was just a beautiful flowing, you know, like, like God's right there. And uh, so when she got through, I said, amen to what she said. Because <laughs> I couldn't think of anything different than what she already said. And then we start, okay, we'll read the Bible. I'll read a chapter one night, you read a chapter one night. You got to start somewhere. So I, I'd read a chapter. And I come across some word, and I think, what does that mean? Because I couldn't finish the chapter. I, gotta, I, I don't know what it means. I get, what, what does it mean? And she would, okay, you read the next night. She would just read it. No problem. Me, I start reading. I can't pronounce these words. And, and this thee and thou stuff, that really got to me. I, I didn't talk like that. And so there's a problem with that. And so finally, after a while, I said, okay, you go ahead and read tonight and, uh, uh, and the next night and, and the next night. <laughs> Growing in the Lord is not so much fun. But once you have learned how to build your boat, you want to see if it'll float. You've got to come to the place in your life, well, was this thing sink? You can raise your kids and you try to teach them all the things. But sooner or later, you've got to cut them adrift. You've got to let them get out there and see if they can make it on their own. You don't mind if they come home, just don't stay long. Just, you love to see them come, love to see them go. <laughs> but you want them to be able to, then to make it. Can they trust the Lord? Is all of those things you taught, is it going to hold up? And you've got to learn to trust the Lord and even cut in the string sometimes. Because there comes the time when you can't raise them. Anymore. But when a man and a woman gets married, the man is to have the spiritual leadership of the home. He's to be the godly head of the home. He should be the one that makes the decision and says, we're going to church today. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. He can take all the advice he wants, and he does. 
He's going to get it one way or the other, but he still has to be the main one that makes the decision. God's going to hold the man responsible. But today we have it to where not many men are men. They don't take leadership. And they're willing to give it to the wife. And the wife is like a half-ton pickup, and you just put a, a two-ton load on it, and you wonder why the thing's breaking down, and the marriage breaks apart. You're not doing the things that are right. Put God's word first, and you'll be surprised. I wrote a little statement in here. Women are to follow their head, not their heart. Because the head, see, the Bible says in the book of Corinthians chapter 11, uh, the head of the woman is the man. Now, I didn't, I didn't write the Bible. I just want to let y'all know that. I didn't write the Bible. But that's in the Bible. And if you don't believe that, then you got to, what are you going to do, cut it out of the Bible? You don't believe that's in the Bible? You're going to have to give it a different meaning? And one time I had this couple that came to see me. And they wanted me to perform their wedding for them. So as I'm sitting there talking to them, I looked at him. I says, why do you want to marry her? She looked over and said, well, <laughs> I'm thinking. I said, because you love her. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Poor guy. And I says, now, when we do the marriage vows, this is what I usually say. I says, you know, will you love, honor, and obey? She said, ho, 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 ho. Strike that. I says, what? The obey part. Strike that out of that. I says, you don't want me to say that? No. I says, this is 50-50. I says, I cannot do your wedding. I can only do a Christian wedding. I says, you can get a justice of the peace to marry you, but I says, I do a Christian wedding, and I honor the Lord. And you are to obey him. And if you're not going to do that, let him marry a woman who will obey him. I will say this. My wife and I, we've been married going on 58 years. I have never met a woman like my wife. I told my wife years ago, I says, we'll never have an argument if you don't argue. You say, you did not say that. I most certainly did. We will not have an argument if you don't argue. And the reason you argue is because you question their judgment. I says, just let me fail. Let there be problems. And that'll wake me up a lot faster than you trying to correct me. I says, and that made me a lot more careful with all of my decisions. And that poor little woman has followed me all across this country. As I look back over my life, I says... God bless her. God bless her. She has been a gift from God. Because most women would never have yielded to her husband like that woman has done for me. But then that's why I'm in the ministry. And that's why I'm serving the Lord. You take away my wife and I ain't got much left. Behind every good man is a woman. Sometimes two or three. And that's what you got to watch. Love your wife and be the right example. If you're married, you love your wife. You honor your wife. Don't you ever flirt with another woman that doesn't belong to you. And all sex outside of marriage is wrong. You can't make it right. It's wrong. And keep your eyes on the Lord and you'll be surprised that the difference it can make in your life and in your marriage. And wives, don't try to be some good-looking Hollywood star. Be what you are and be real. You're pretty if you do right. You're a thing of beauty. But anyway, in John 15, why we were there just a moment ago, it talks about bearing fruit. Moreover, God is pleased 
If a man bear much fruit, God wants every one of us to be fruit bearing. Since you've trusted Christ as your Savior, are you bearing fruit? You should. Because that is what God wants every man to do. Just like man, woman, get married. Two become one flesh. Bob, there's a child. Because nobody had any kids, uh, that'd be the end of the human race. Don't take one generation to end all. But God brings people together. And it's a normal thing for little Johnny to come along or little Mary to come along. God wants fruit. In your Christian life, there is a tree of life. You can follow the branch. I can follow mine back to my father-in-law who followed his back to Jesse Henley. Hank Lindstrom could follow his back to Ray Stanford. There's a tree. And then when you trust Christ as your Savior, has there been any others that you've led to the Lord since you've trusted Christ as your Savior? There should be. That's an important thing. The last one here I want to mention very quickly, the anatomy of stewardship. Don't have to turn to this right now, but uh, in Romans in chapter 15, right there in your notes, for whatsoever things were written aforetime, were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. God says all scripture is for us. Not all of it is to us directly. In other words, I don't go build an ark because my name is Noah. And I don't, you know, go down to Egypt and say, Pharaoh, let my people go because that's not me. There's a lot of scriptures that we can learn and says these things were written for our learning. So I want you to take your Bible and look at this one scripture in the book of Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. It's the last book in the Old Testament. And it's right before Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament. And in the church Bible, it's on page 982. But I want you just to see this very quickly. Look in verse 8. In verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? He says, in tithes and offerings. I'm not under the law. But then you can't say, well, we're not under the Ten Commandments anymore. Well, the Ten Commandments says, thou shalt not lie. So now I'm not under the law. It's okay to lie now. Thou shalt not kill. Oh, it's okay to kill now, right? Well, I'm not under the law. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Well, it's okay to do it now. See, just because it was under the law didn't make it wrong. Even the principle of how they gave doesn't make it wrong just because, well, they did that under the law. They ate under the law, too. They put clothes on under the law, too. Is all that wrong? Now we should walk around naked as Jadeberg. No. But if it was written for our learning, what can I learn from this? When he makes a statement, you have robbed me in tithes and offering. Whatever that was, if they didn't give that, they were robbing God. Well, if that was robbing God, I don't want to rob God. So I have made sure in the last 57 and a half years of my life that I don't rob him. I've always given a tithe. Not because I have to, but because I want to. The last thing I want to do, I feel like if I give less than that, I am robbing. If they were robbing back then, wouldn't I be robbing it now? Why can't I give under grace what they gave under law? And so I give a tithe, and then I give an offering over that. So every week of my life, I've always done that. You say, you do it because you're the preacher. 
I did it before I was a preacher. That's how I got to be a preacher. Because I was faithful before. I was always faithful going to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Every time I could when the doors were open, I was faithful in going. With a wife and two kids and sometimes I would have to come into Wednesday night and I had on my work boots and my clothes were dirty and so forth. And I sat there and I'd been sweating and I stunketh. But I was going to do it. And other people won't do it because they always got a good reason not to do it. I, no, no, no. If I can do it, I'm, I'm there. So over the years, I've never had to worry about if my wife's going to go to church today with me. I never have to worry about why. My wife, we go to church. We hardly ever miss. She'll get up and she'll go. I don't have to worry about, well, tonight, well, tonight you know, she's had a hard day. She probably just doesn't want to come tonight. If she's not half dead, she'll be here. And so will I. And Wednesday night. And then we go all the time in between. Why? Because that's our life. I want to be a friend of God by doing what he asked me to do. Not because I have to. I want to. I don't know what it is. God, I guess, just put a, a want to machine inside of me. Don't you have the desire to want to serve God? To be close to the Lord? Where he's the closest thing that you have? See, people will fail you. He won't fail you. He's my best friend. I've learned how to walk with the Lord. And I can share anything with my best friend. And I have things that I can't share with people. You don't know what they'll do with the knowledge. But I can always trust him. He didn't go around telling on me either. And God doesn't gossip to me. And God doesn't gossip about me. Best friend you'll ever have. But first of all, you have to become his child. And watch one more time. You and me sin. We all have sinned. We're all in the same boat. God loves us. He don't like what we do wrong, but he loves us. And because we've all sinned, we're all condemned. It means we've all got to pay for what we've done. But the Bible says that um, Jesus Christ, who had no sin, didn't have to die. But because he loved us, he took all the sin of all the world and paid for it on the cross. Came back from the dead. Why did he do that? Because he didn't want you to do it. He paid for your sins because he didn't want you to pay for yours. He did it 2,000 years ago. So when he was on the cross, you were on his mind. He was thinking about you. Even though you hadn't even been born yet. He went ahead and paid for all of your sins that you'll ever commit. Your whole life. Time you're born to the time you die. He paid for all of them. And says the only thing he wanted you to do is would you believe he did it for you? He came back from the dead. Says whosoever would believe that he did it for them, he would give them as a free gift everlasting life. So when I was 18 years old and I heard this for the first time, Christ died for me. And all I had to do was believe he did it for me. There's no tricks to it, no gimmicks. Then give it to me in a big print and yank it away in a little print. He meant exactly what he said. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, whosoever what? Believeth. When you believe it, that payment is put to your account. You go to heaven as though you never committed a sin. In God's eyes, you have been washed pure and holy and white as snow. You're perfect in God's eyes because you don't have a debt to pay. You don't have any sins to your account. Christ died for you. 
You see, you've got to be perfect to go to heaven. And in God's eyes, I am. God gave me his perfection. I'm going to heaven on what he did for me. The only reason I'm going to heaven is because Christ died for my sins. But he did it for you too. And the only thing you have to do to go to heaven is will you believe he did it for you. I pray that you will. With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around. If you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, why not do it right now? If he asked you all that he wanted you to do is believe it, you can handle that. You can do that. That's not hard. It doesn't depend upon you doing something or being something. It's just you're receiving what he did for you. And friend, if it makes sense, would you trust Christ as your Savior this morning? I'm going to ask you in just a moment to raise your hand. Raising your hand does not save you. It just lets me know that what I said made sense to you. And I'd like to know it and I'd like to have prayer for you. I'm not going to embarrass you. Like I said, I'm not going to have you forward. It's over and done with when you make the decision. Yes, God bless you, ma'am. Just slip it up very quickly and put it right back down. Yes, God bless you. You can put him down. Anyone else, just slip your hand up very quickly, put it right back down. If you trust Christ as your Savior right now, God saves you right now and gives you eternal life. God bless you, sir. I saw your hand. Anyone else? Our Father, thank you so much for these that have indicated by an uplifted hand that they would accept the payment Jesus Christ made on the cross for them. By doing so, you guarantee them eternal life, that you'll never cast them out and never lose them. And Father, we thank you so much for all that you do for us and that we can have you as our very best friend to walk with you. And Father, yes, that relationship, I'm your child. You're my father. And Lord, I want to walk with you and have the fellowship that I so greatly desire. Bless each one here that you'll give us good fellowship and thank you for all that you do for us in Christ's name. Amen.